Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today, this is part two of the Black Women Woes uh, episode. You guys know that I did part one uh, with Marcy and Letty and and Patricia and Shay, and it was amazing. So I wanted to do a part two with other Black women that I admire and follow and kind of stalk, to be honest with you. Like, (laughs) I want to say thank you to all of you for for being here. And, And then if you would introduce yourself. So first, I will uh, start with Amber. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Amber. If I say my name wrong, forgive me. I just got a new name. I got married. So I had a new social security card like five minutes. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's Sims now, you know, it used to be Booker, but um, I mean, basically, I got a big mouth. I'm a lawyer. And I, I like to talk a lot. That's about it. You know, really, I just (laughs) try to spend a little time on the internet explaining things that mean a lot to me. My grief in life is seeing people taken advantage of out of ignorance from an ignorant place, because Mm -hmm. we have a tendency Mm -hmm. in our society to weaponize information and intentionally withhold it, intentionally confuse people in very crucial spaces, politics, theology. And so really my passion is in the spaces where I know things, I try to share it in a way that I feel like people can understand it so they can be empowered to make the decisions that are best for them and that lead them to be able to live their best life. So that's basically who I am and what I do. I mean this in the most respectful manner. <laughs> I want you to know that you're that bitch. Oh, I love well, thank it. you. you know, <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. I'm a, I'm a hood rat masquerading as a lawyer. So thank you <laughs> for <laughs> giving the compliment to me in a way I can truly receive it. Thank you. Yes, yes, <laughs> Thank yes. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next, uh, Courtney, if you'll introduce yourself. Why? Amber just <laughs> killed it. So good. I can already tell, like, I'm so excited we all are here. Um, my name is Courtney Napier, pronouns she, her, hers. I am a liberation practitioner, a writer, a journalist, a gatherer, also a mama and a partner. And I also have a big mouth. I am a a Leo, (laughs) a Leo with a a Virgo moon. So I have so much to say. And I know I'm right about 90% of the time and the other 10%, I just bullshit, you know, real good. I'm so good at it. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I vibe with Amber a lot because that's, that's my angle as a journalist, as a writer, I wanted to take difficult concepts that are happening in the black community and put them in a way that were engaging, that were, you know, fun to read even, or compelling or emotional to read, but also very informational. And so um, I do a lot, I write a lot about black history I come from Raleigh, North Carolina, so I write a lot about North Carolina's Black history, and I like to connect people to where they are. You know, I want them to know what happened on the streets that they walk on every day. I feel like that's a very empowering thing. So, um, and I also love honoring my, my elders. 
I say that I don't have an inner child. I have an inner old woman. <laughs> so I connect very deeply with, with elders and I love to learn their stories. They've called me a griot. I don't think you can call yourself that, but that's what I've been called. So it's a, it's an honor and a privilege to carry that title. So happy to be here. So excited to be here. I love that the inner old woman that that resonates as I've started collecting various uh, types of moo-moos lately. So mm, motherfucking moo-moo, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, just call me the Black <laughs> Mrs. Roper. So, <laughs> uh, so anyhow, next is. Uh, Faith, if you would introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Faith, and I'm a writer and an anti-racism educator. And I really just believe in just showing up as my full self. So whatever self I decide to present to the world today, whether that means I feel like talking to white people about racism, or if I just want to say, I'm just happy to exist as a black woman. And um, if you don't like that, don't talk to me today. Um, you know, whatever, whatever I'm feeling, that's what I like to give out into the world. And so my writing and what I produce reflects that. Um, I don't want to simply box myself in. I feel like that's the, the freedom that many of us Black women are embarking upon and continuing to let us feel as we are who we are. And we don't have yeah. to be limited by who you think we should be. So that is what I um, you know, feel like I get to put out into the world. And I'm an auntie. Mm -hmm. I have a niece and a nephew that I love dearly. And um, I love that part of my life, getting to love them and be in their life. And Sharifa. Um, well, I'm Sharifa. I am from the Bronx, but I live <laughs> in Dallas, which I say in the interrogative because I'm still like, why Lord? But okay, I am a writer and a theologian and I love to examine the intersections of life and the intersection of theology and culture. Mm. Oh, and I'm, I'm married and I have two babies. Yes. Thank you all. <laughs> so I love just this, this chance to get you all's feedback on the black experience and, and really what it means to be a black woman or a black fam. And my first question for you all, and we'll start with Amber is what are you no longer willing to accept from others? Ooh, let me check my 75 page list, child. <laughs> um, I think right now for me, probably at the top of that list is I am no longer willing to accept casual disregard. I think for a very long time, I normalized people disregarding my feelings, disregarding my boundaries, um, disregarding like my capacity for things. And I thought that was me like being accommodating. And what I'm realizing is that like going along to get along, not complaining is not a flex, right? Just sort of letting people, um, put me in this, oh, she's so easy box. She's not difficult or that is not a flex. And it has only been probably in the last year that I have realized that that was nothing for me to be proud of, that people found me so accommodating and so easy to get along with. 
And I thought back to my brother died suddenly in 2014. And the day after my brother died, I showed up at court for a hearing, you know, because I just, I didn't want to make a fuss, you know, and I just think about like things like that. And it's finally taken me all this time to realize that it is okay for me to make noise, to take space up, to tell people no, to protect my peace. You know, I just had an attorney call me from San Francisco. It's two o'clock there. It's four o'clock here the day before weekend. And I was like, I'm not going to have it till Tuesday. And I mean, he kept like, you know, I was like, Tuesday, Tuesday, like not today, because it's two o'clock where you are. It's four o'clock where I am. Have a good weekend. Enjoy your Labor Day. And there would have been a time where I would have felt like a terrible person. You know, I would have probably done it, honestly. And, you know, so just that for me is really big is just not allowing people to disregard me and standing up for myself. That disregarding that hits that hits me like I get totally with you on that. Um, Courtney, what are you no longer willing to accept? That is really powerful. And I feel like mine connects with that. I've been described um in a very similar manner as being very so easygoing and and you know just accommodating and willing to just go along for the ride and um I was talking to a friend a couple nights ago and I told her I realized that I realized that I had started achieving a little bit of success not when people were you know buying into my work but when people wanted to start hitching their wagon to it like that's when I realized something had shifted in my work and I made a decision and this is last night y'all like but really it was like last night I am no longer doing things that I'm not passionate about and I'm not going to allow myself to be used like you were saying I you know I'm a people pleaser by nature I'm a firstborn um and I have I'm a very sensitive person Leo's we we have a lot of a broad bravado excuse me but we can also be very sensitive and therefore very people pleasing um but I am I'm learning I'm flexing my no I'm learning how to say this is not a good time for this or you know things have changed I can also change my mind changing my mind is okay to do I'm not going to be guilted you know in that regard of, of of being a part of something realizing it's not working out life changing as it does and not responding accordingly so I am, I am no longer allowing myself to be used. I have a calling and I have a gift and I have things that, that bring me pleasure and joy that need to be prioritized. And if it doesn't fit into that, it just, you know, it just doesn't. I'm not, and I'm not the answer to everybody's problem. So just because I can't do it doesn't mean it won't be done well, won't be done better. And I'm okay with that. I mean, th- there's something really familiar about the usury experience among black women women yeah. um not not among but for yeah that black yes. women Directed get used yes right um even and even the the what do you call it the profaning the profaning of the concept of friendship um what it even means when when friendship is used as a a guise and a mask for manipulation um, appropriation, usury, like, like there's just something so uh, on brand for how we are interacted with as Black women, and if, and our nose becomes so incredibly objectionable 
offensive, uh, subversive in, in not only in our lives, but also on the national stage, the international stage with all the no's, with Naomi Osaka, with Simone Biles, uh, with who am I missing? Because I know I'm missing. Oh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Like it just, it's, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't surprise me that our nose have to be so strong. Like, and we have to be so assertive in and, and strong about our nose because we're, we're raised to be, we're raised to be easy. We're raised to be easy. Even before we go out into the world. Yeah. A lot of us were raised to be easy and, and easy is not easy. It is absorbing a lot. It is metabolizing a lot. It is like I I I get into a, a state of a state of rage thinking about this, honestly, because um, this absorption is weathering. This mm-hmm. absorption is affecting our genomes, our our internal health, our spiritual vivaciousness. It's like it's so it's so pervasive that our nose is, our nose are an act of worship. Yes. Like, yeah. Our nose are holy work. You know, I, we, I applaud every time I hear some, like when you said what you said, Courtney, that's holy work. The holiness of a black woman's nose and, and it's life-saving. Um, so with that faith, what are mm. you no longer accepting? Mm. I am no longer willing to be everything to everyone that they need me to be and not be what I need to be to myself. Much like this collective of what we're talking about, of our nose, of, you know, being easy. I've felt a lot of that. I'm, I'm easy for people. I'm accommodating and, um, but I'm also blunt and I'm truth telling as well. And so sometimes I've felt the need in certain life situations to lighten the blow for people Um, but on the back end, emotionally, when I really have enough time to sit with myself, to talk through things with my therapist, I'm realizing that lightening the blow for you is making the burden bigger for me. And, um, I am not at the mental place where I can carry other people's burdens and it's time for me to focus on my own self. So I'm just not willing to carry all of these needs. And, um, I had a great, you know, session with my therapist talking about, um, a friend. And I said, you know, I'm going to be honest. I have a lot going on in my life right now and they have a lot of needs. I can't help them. And, you know, she said, and you shouldn't feel like you have to. So just let them be and they'll be okay. And sometimes I feel like, why didn't I give myself that permission sooner? You know, and I give myself that permission sooner. I've been carrying these burdens of feeling like it's not good of me to not go the extra mile for people to not show up when people need me. Um, but I, I had to pause and it's when life blows up, but I realized I need to show up for myself. And um, like Sharifa was just saying that no, the no that I've chosen specifically this year, I've let a lot of things go because I needed to choose myself and I feel more powerful in saying no and letting go of all the familiarity than before when I was burdened by doing. That's so powerful. Sharifa, what are you no longer accepting from others? Uh, Well, I think it boils down to um, transaction for me. I don't want 
to accept transactional relationships from other people. Um, I think right now I am trying to unlearn a lot, unlearn um, in terms of, of what makes a person have value. I have been taught that value is in production, what you can produce. As, as someone who follows Jesus, the way, the way he did life was absolutely the antithesis of this. And I want to be more like that. So um, I'm not a commodity and I don't want to accept interactions that treat me as a commodity. And I in turn don't want to treat people like commodities. That's powerful. That's powerful. Isn't that so funny? Like church people, because I know I'm Baptist. You know, we get taught that all God wants is to use us, right? Oh, God wants to use me. God wants to use me. God wants to use me. And you become like prostitutes, right? Not worshipers, because you think like God's just wanting to use you. So you always have to have something that makes you like usable, useful, right? And I, that is something that is a big part of my faith journey right now is deciding to believe that God wants to be with me more than he is interested in using me. I am not, God didn't create me to be a commodity. Like you said, I am a loved daughter. I am a person. I'm not an yeah. instrument and my usefulness yeah. is not the basis of God's love for me. And that is something that is for like a perfectionist type A, you know, cried every time I didn't make a hundred, like that has been such a toxic part of my theology for so mm -hmm. much of my life. This idea that God wants, I need to be useful to God. God wants to use me, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, yes. that's, that's when, what, when the gospel becomes good news is when it's different than yes. what the world has to give. And the world mm. is out to use us. And we were literally commodity. We are, we, we still are commodified. So good news is the opposite. Right. And that's freedom. Absolutely. You better say And I want to add really quickly. I'm sorry. I want to add really quickly that there is a level of, this hit me a little while ago, but there is definitely a level of ableism wrapped up in that message of like, God wants to use you and all that. And, and my, my value in, in the kingdom and the family is, is my performance and what I can produce. Because I think about those who don't have the capacity to do, you know, they can't do the bunny hop on the stage. They can't, yes. you know, they can't, they can't praise dance. They can't yes. evangelize. They can't tithe all this, you know? And so who are they? And I think, and it's something that was revealed to me a while ago, but really hit me very recently that that is capitalism. That is colonialism. Is. That is white supremacy. It has nothing to do with who God is, it is, you know, and, and who, who Christ is and what, because he was drawn to those who had none of those things, who had capacity to do none of those things. And that's who he spent his time with. And it really just, Amber, I mean, all of us, what we're saying, but, but Amber, specifically your words is what made me think of this is that 
it's it's truly just as I am. And just as I am yes. is not a, it's not like, oh, this is, you know, poor, this is all I have. It is exactly, there is gifts, there is inherent wisdom in exactly who we present as. You know, there's inherent wisdom in Black trans women. There's inherent wisdom in those who are blind. There's inherent wisdom in the bodies and minds of ADHD folks like me, you know, there is inherent, we have a gift to bring to the table that will not be at that table if we aren't there. Yes. And that That is something that really, you know, thank you, Amber, for saying that. And Sharifa, I paid all of you for building such a beautiful, you know, monument to the love of God in this conversation already, Jesus, already. So that leads me to my next question. I mean, I just felt like that was just so intuitively, you know, intuitive for you all to speak about faith and, and God. And so each of you, and I'll start with faith. What have you learned about God that's been transformative to your own growth? Man, I think one of the things that I've truly learned about God that's been transformative to me and really freeing to me is that God isn't as complicated as people in church have made faith and spirituality to be. And um, I've let go of all of the sense of if I need to, you know, oh, do I need to go to church X, Y, and Z times a week? Or do I need to do this? I need to volunteer. And, And I've spent years kind of letting go of most of, you know, those things. And, you know, really just saying, you know, I, I can connect with God wherever I am. And I am accepted and whole and loved wherever I am. And my relationship with God and how I connect with the divine is personal and it's beautiful. And I've really realized that when you're, when you're wanting to commune with God, to truly commune with him, it's very simple and it's not as complicated as everyone else has made it. It's not 10 steps to this, five steps to this. You're either in or you're out. If you, you know, do things like this, you know, if you believe that you're out, you know, if you don't um, love people um, the way that, you know, we love people, then, you know, you're out. I mean, I just, it's too much. It's like an elitist club and that's not what I believe. And that's not what I signed up to be in. And so those are just forms of faith and spirituality that I've been okay of letting go of. And my view of God and connection to God has been much more expansive when I let go and stopped caring about what everybody else said I needed to be in order to connect and commune with God. I found that on my own and I don't need other people around me or in the silos or other places to define what connecting to God really looks like for me personally. That's, so on point. And, and it really makes me think about my own relationship with God and how I felt closest to God in the times when I was furthest away from the actual brick and mortar building from the church. You got it. And, and like, even in this, I feel like this podcast episode is, this is community right here. This is God right here. This is this is if two or three gather in my name right here, right? And I can feel God even right here. And so I've, I've been closest to God. The, the further I get away from uh, colonized Christ, 
I've learned that, that God is for me and I don't have to follow a script. I don't have to be a part of the clique. <laughs> I don't have to do all the things like you spoke to faith. It's, it's so exhaustive. I mean, it's just, there's so many things that the church, like you have to do X, Y, and Z. And I realized that I don't have to do anything that God is for me. And when you know that, to me, that is, there's no greater love. Then that, that allowed me to learn to love myself. So, so that knowing it was transformative for me. So, so Amber, um, what has been. I just want to say something really quick. Mm -hmm. When I think about white Jesus, you know, the white Jesus has talked about, there's no rest in white Jesus. There's only work for us. It's all about what you do. There's no rest, you know? And so in connecting with God in the space that I've been in, I've been resting, which means Mm -hmm. I don't know who white Jesus is. So that's all I got to say. Listen, y'all, I'm Baptist. I'm going to shout in a minute, okay? I'm going to shout in a minute. I'm going to (laughs) shout in real life. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, that I was thinking about your words, God is for me. And who I've been admiring in the Bible most that like my whole life, I've almost looked over. It's like my new Bible hero is the thief at the cross um, on Calvary. And I just think about how much faith it took to believe that it wasn't too late. How much faith it took to believe that this radical love was something that he was still eligible for and the courage to ask for it. Um, Because I think about who I am as a person and I probably never in a million years would have had enough courage to overcome my shame or just the assumption that it was just too late for me, right? And so when I hear you say God is for me, that is so radical. It is so radical to really rest in that, to think that it does not matter how much you've messed up. It doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter what you possess or where you come from. You know, to think about how much courage it it takes to really believe that against the backdrop of a resume that everybody dismisses and that everybody looks at and says, actually, you are eligible for death. You don't even deserve to live. That is how much you failed. And I think about that man and I pray to God to give me a heart like that, to really believe in, and you summed it up because I haven't been able to really put it into words, but just to really believe in my core that God is for me and that it is not too late. It is never too late for me to embrace that mindset, to not live in the light of what people try to cast on you about who you are and allow that to keep you from radically pressing into God, you know? And and that's where I am right now because I think every day in my mind, I go through the list of all the stuff that I'm not doing, that I need to be doing. It's a white Jesus thing, like Faith talked about, like all the reasons why I'm messing up, I'm failing, all the reasons why God is displeased with me, right? And I just sometimes have to pause and think like, girl, you like right here next to Jesus and you just need to reach out to him because he's not going to reject you. It is not too late, right? It, it, and, and it really is God is for me. And, and that has been 
where I've been lately is really trying to have the faith to believe that in a radical, deep way in my heart. Sharifa, what has been transformative for your growth as it relates to learning about faith in God? Well, for me, um, honestly, what has helped me the most in the last 10 years is my children um, reading the Bible with them um, because they don't have any scripts that they follow because their questions are honest um, because I get to reparent myself as I talk to them and um, keep open and honest dialogue where there are a lot of times where I receive you know, you don't question, don't question the Bible, don't question God, um, that is an evidence of a lack of faith. And with my kids, you know, I will never tell them that, <laughs> that that will never be the conversation. And rather, they, they come up with, you know, they are a part of my community. And I think that community is absolutely necessary for me to more wholly understand who God is. Um, like it is essential for me to listen to your, each of your testimonies to help me to see God more fully um, and to trust more because of what I hear. And also I the honesty of struggle, I think, is really um, necessary for any relationship. Um, that that str a struggle to understand, uh, an honest questioning, a, a growth in relationship, a growth in knowing the other person. I don't. So I like the struggle, and I. I invite the struggle and I also um, am really grateful for people younger than I am and people older than I am and people my age and people of, of every, every kind who speak into, who give me the gift of speaking into um, who God is. What is possible for every person when there's no script about who I am and who I support and who I love mm. like like that's mm. that's deep that's deep Courtney oh I feel like it's lined up so beautifully because I feel like this really piggybacks off of Sharifa's um reflection which is continuing this idea of 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 inherent wisdom and I was just sitting with my dad and he read the scripture and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, we, we are equipped with everything that leads, that leads to life and godliness. And um, so the beginning of the story that I'm, I'm attempting to condense, but the beginning of the story is in, in June of 2020, my cousin, my sister cousin, I called her, was diagnosed with um, leukemia and she passed away in March. And of 2021. And um, it was completely devastating. We grew up together. It, I mean, I'm still healing, you know, like I was grieving her like in tears just last night. Um, but there was something about her death 
that really, that, that rocked my body in a way that, you know, as I, I was kind of in the beginning of um, my mental health journey, I'd had kind of like a breakdown a few weeks even before that and started new medication and just kind of getting used to like feeling halfway decent. And so um, that happened and I realized, I wrote like almost like a poem that was just like, there's something about her death. Nobody has to tell me to be sad about this. Like nobody has to tell me that. So what does that mean? That means that this is a natural, this is not okay. You know, it's not okay for someone so young to die. Like we can, we can rationalize it. We can intellectualize it all we want to, but my body did not lie. You know, I burst into tears when I found out what happened. No one had to tell me to do that. And it opened up this idea for me that so much of, of, of the doctrines that we were given are um, because they are based out of, out of whiteness, you know, like a lot of the, a lot of the, well, at least how I was raised in the evangelical church and the white evangelical church, a lot of that doctrine is based out of whiteness. And out of that is, is an intellectualization of the gospel and of life. And so Angela Davis kind of puts it in the words of like kind of rationalizing the screams of suffering around you. Like that is the roots of the, of the churches that I was raised in, especially when it comes to black bodies, rationalizing the screams of the suffering of black and marginalized bodies. And I, and I hit this point where I'm like, you know what? There is an inherent wisdom in my body in pleasure and reading Audre Lorde and, and, th- and learning about the, the power of the erotic. And I'm like, there is a, that is a sense. That is a, a way for me to move about the world with a level of knowledge where I can navigate and understand what's good for me, what's not good for me, what's good for my family, my community, what's not good, is how much pleasure, like what happens to me on a visceral emotional level that is not prompted, like you said, it's off script. There is no script. You know, my body knows when there is something wrong. Like when I witness a hungry child, when I witness a battered woman, when I witness all the bullshit on TV of, of, our, of our brothers and sisters being maimed by the police. No one has to tell me that's wrong. My body does it. I tense up, I sweat, I get hot. You know, you have those like, tra- you know, those trauma responses to these triggers. And, and then, you know, the, the inner oppressor comes in and says, well, you know, what happened? You know, they start intellectualizing. Well, what happened? Who was where? What was this situation? Da, 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 da. Like, what are the laws? What does the law say? Like all the bullshit starts coming in. And I'm like, hold up. That's all societal. That shit's all made up. All the laws, all of this, all of that. Somebody sat down and made that up. What my body just told me is that another human body was broken for nothing. And I have, to, and that's God. That's God's voice in me, you know? And that's, something that growing up in my church, we were told that, you know, the body is like the one thing that you're not supposed to listen to, (laughs) you know, like the body is evil. The body is wayward. The body is not what gets redeemed and saved when you become a Christian. It's just your spirit. So everything has to be spirit led. But what does that mean? Typically what, what is being, what's being said implicitly is that you are following 
whatever the doctrine, whatever the tradition, whatever the words of, of the of the man or, or person of God, you know, over that church. And if what the message in you doesn't line up with that person, then I'm wrong. They're not wrong, <laughs> you know. But I'm realizing that the intellect is the most malleable, manipulative, manipulative or manipulate, yes, manipulatable. That the intellect is the most manipulatable part of me. Someone can tell me anything and make it sound like it makes sense. But you can't manipulate the body. If I'm hungry, I'm hungry. You know, if I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. You know, and, and, but if I'm having contractions, the baby's coming. You know what I mean? It's like God gave us this. This is, this is wisdom. This is inherent wisdom. This is the voice of God in our bodies. And, and I'm, I am leaning into that in a way that I never have before. I am embracing it and, and hearing and learning so much because I'm just, I'm tuning out the rationalization of the suffering in this world you know, the rationalization of, of the oppression in this world. And I'm, I'm trusting what my body says. I'm trusting that. And, and so that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Well, that's I why white that. Jesus wants to police our body so much. That's why white Jesus is so invested in the policing of the body. Because if you, you know, because the body is the vessel that holds the spirit. So it's like this idea that we're supposed to live in this dissonant place where to hell with your body, but focus on the spirit. Well, God, if, if the body wasn't valuable, God wouldn't have given us one. And what he declared right. good, what, what was declared good was the, t- the totality of who man was right. in creation, the spirit, the soul, and the part that was made from the ground. And so yes. this idea that we're just supposed to, right, cast all pleasure to the pits of hell. You know, I remember one of the first sermons I heard that I thought I was on my path to freedom was one of those white Jesus sermons, like God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. And I, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that it was true for so long. Like it doesn't matter if I'm happy, have to be holy. And this idea that holiness is devoid of happiness, that holiness is devoid yeah. of pleasure. You know, Jesus talked mm-hmm. about how the pleasure he experienced was when he dwelled in unity with the father. Like that, mm. that was holiness, but that was pleasure. And so this idea that I had to cast off my happiness, any pursuit of joy to be holy. I mean, it, it is really profound how we distort the gospel really just to mm. control people and police them, mm. you know? Mm. Yes. Yeah. So powerful. And that, that, and that, that joy would come in the afterlife, right? Yes. So somehow. Yes, I've got a four feet joy right now mm. and pleasure right now. And, and when I'm dead, then then that's if, if I make it to heaven, if I make the cut, then that'll be my reward. Mm. Yeah. What a grist, right? It's, it's like I such know, a right? grist. I'm just like on so many levels. Because, man, Courtney, what you said about intellectualizing, like I see it, like I, I, I was wondering how... Like, what do I call this? Because it's so, um, it's it's such a malevolent, insidious way of being to come in the name of God and separate you from your body. And it flies in the face of the very incarnation of Jesus Christ. He did not, he did not come here for two minutes and leave. Like, he brought so much, 
he just in case we thought there was no dignity in the body, he was like, wait, let me let me lie in the womb of a woman. Let me be born. Let me suckle. Let me get potty trained. Let me grow. Let me like all of it. But but he did this like he was vulnerable in a way where someone else had to wipe his bottom. He he had to be fed. The, the, he is the son of God. So like everything that he did and experienced dignified and emphasized the fact I'm not here just for your soul. And when I come back, when, when, when I am resurrected, I'm going to make my boys breakfast. Woo! Like, don't tell me the body doesn't matter. He made that grilled, that charcoal fish on the beach and he ate it with his boys. Are you going to tell me that the body doesn't matter? The body matters. The body always matters. And it's, it's like, it makes me angry when people dabble. No, they don't dabble. They dominate and they build empires mm. off of this false theology that tries to separate people from their bodies so that they mm. can be exploitable. exploitable. Yes. That's what it is. It's yes. grooming. And that's why it's such Ooh. a great, a great place for uh, domestic violence, for, mm-hmm. for sexual abuse. That's why, that's why so many of us suffer silently after being uh, spiritually, emotionally mm-hmm. abused and manipulated, mm-hmm. sexually abused, physically abused. All of that thrives in, in an atmosphere that says, oh, don't worry about don't worry about your body. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You don't Courtney, know what you like, feel. What you, you don't know said. what you need. Right. That second guessing is grooming. Mm. And what the, and good news, good news is 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 ha- living in harmony with body, soul, and spirit. Like yes. and, and body. Like all, all of it, all of it together. That's the good news. The and the, and the good news about that is that God wants to be with us. In every way, in all of those ways. So faith, we often think of reparations as like what's owed to our ancestors and and currently what's owed to Black people, right? And what we've earned. And and I'd like to extend the definition just for the purpose of this conversation. If you were to receive reparations today, what would that look like for you? And what would you want? And some examples are reparations from family, from church, from past friends, white supervisors, co-workers, white women, black men. Man, it's interesting because when I think of reparations, obviously my first mind, you know, it typically goes to the financial aspect. But even in thinking of the answer to this question, it still goes back to me more than it goes back to these people, which is reparations in my mind would in some way, I guess, if you could if you could time travel, I guess, would be going back to myself that experienced the different hurtful people in my life, whether that was, you know, the person that assaulted me, the coworkers, all these other people, and um, be in a place of power and not feel victimized. The reparations is within me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's understanding that I contain the power that I need to uphold the strength and dignity and, and value that I have. And I feel so assured in this, that you people who at some point made me question that or 
did not give me the opportunity or did not treat me with dignity in those moments, not only were you corrected, but I wasn't afraid to walk away. And I didn't carry shame for the things that happened to me. So the reparations is really the trusting the strength within me, within my body to do as I know to do, which is whether you treated me well or not, whether you gave me the raise or not, I will be okay. And I will have more than what I had when I was with you. Because the truth is, is that there's never a lack of abundance. Sometimes it just takes me longer to get to where I need to be to experience it. My God, that's powerful. Amber, what would reparations look like for you? I feel like Faith's answer is the evolved answer. And mine is the more premature, immature version of hers. But I was telling my therapist this. For me, reparations look like I'm still at a place where I want my pain to be acknowledged. That lack of acknowledgement hurts me. And that that's just really my truth, is that the fact that there have been situations, you know, intimate love, but, um, you know, even places that I've worked, places where I've labored, you know, church hurt, all of that, and just feeling like I've had to walk away without having the very real pain I experienced be acknowledged. And I can honestly say I'm not there. And I think that is the goal to get to a place where I recognize that I will be okay. There, there is no scarcity around me and I don't need that outward thing and to reclaim my power. But if I'm just telling the truth, I'm not there yet. And so for me in this moment, sitting here, that sort of process things. The acknowledgement of my pain is what reparations looks like to me. Mm. If I listen to faith and then even as I listen to you, I heard acknowledgement, but I also heard restoration. Courtney, what would reparations look like for you? What would you want? This is a question that stumped me. And I think the question stumped me because I am very bad at voicing my needs. I am notoriously bad at that. Um, but as I kind of, I look back, I think what reparations would be kind of as a, as a history nerd, I would have loved to see what would have happened if all of those towns and all of those spaces and all those institutions that black people created and started flourished. They weren't burned down. They weren't, you know, um, urban renewal didn't put a highway through it. They weren't rezoned for something and torn down, you know, like, they all flourish the schools, the, the, the churches, you know, the, the, t- all of it, you know, I would, I just dream of, of a, you know, everybody who had a farm kept it and is flourishing and is growing, you know, I mean, even to the point of, if there was a way like in my, you know, utopian fantasy for indigenous people to have the same, right. Like to have the things that they had, because what we're learning at this point is whiteness and colonialism have misused the resources that they have stolen, you know, <laughs> that the dominance and competence do not go hand in hand. <laughs> and so you have a lot of people with a lot of things they don't know shit to do with. And now scientists are discovering that practices that we brought to this country from our home and the indigenous folks here practice, that apparently those actually work. And that, you know, it brings flourishing to the land. 
and it heals the body and it creates um, governments and, and, and governing structures that are equitable and just, you know, and people go, do not go wanting and children are fed and educated and all of these things that whiteness believed it had the corner market on, you know, what would this, what would this country be like if they never came, <laughs> you know, or what would it be like if, if we eventually prevailed and, and, you know, Jamestown went down in flames and, and we were able to flourish in the ways that we always knew how, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I feel like that's so, it's almost impossible except for the fact that technology has allowed us to reconnect with a lot of the knowledge and the documents and the, and the recordings and things that we thought were lost. And so many of us are reconnecting with um, the ways of our ancestors. And also, I, I believe that we embody the wisdom that um, of our ancestors too. So even if we don't have the, you know, tangible papers and things, we have it in there. Like it's somewhere in our DNA to understand how to cultivate land and, and raise our children and educate and, and worship and all of these things. It's just a matter of us connecting to that. But I don't know. Sharifa. So um, what, what reparations, my fantasy of reparations is very very much connected to what you said, Courtney, because I I was listening to a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's a botanist who talks about um, just the value of everything around us that lives and how symbiotic that giving and receiving is. And I wept through part of it because there's there's a land that I come from and I don't know it. Part of reparation for me is to put my feet in the soil of my ancestors to return. And, and not, in a, not a return that means I don't have a stake in this country because I do. But in a way where my indigenous brothers and sisters say, like whatever they say, like whatever they say, I can or cannot have in this land, fine by me. I feel, I feel like uh, there's a passage that talks about all creation groaning um, because of how the brokenness of the fall is. And I think part of what is broken and what we see and you would have to be blind not to see how creation is groaning right now, right now. Um, part of that is because of, of murder, of genocide, of, of sins never atoned for, never, barely acknowledged. And to see my indigenous brothers and sisters on their soil again, that's, that's healing. It's, and it's not just healing to the people, it's healing to the land, it's healing to the animals, it's healing to uh, an out of balance world that hasn't reckoned with genocide. I read that the, the Atlantic Ocean, just the, the ocean patterns and the way the animals, the, the, the animals in the sea um, navigate the waters changed during the transatlantic slave trade and have not gone back to the way things were because all creation groans right 
and, and repair, I believe is intimately tied to the land, to the language, to the culture, uh, and to making, to making amends. And it means losing something. It costs. Faith, I'm going to start with you with this next question. Sharifa, I just want to say thank you for your words, especially when it comes to the, our ancestors and everything. I, com- I deeply relate to that. I think if there's anything, anything I would give is to know. I want to know the country. I want to know the language. I want my feet to be on the soil. Um, I want to know where I come from. What a deep and precious reparations that would be. And I think that when we think about the land, right, and our ancestors, ancestors that we don't know, reparations for us would look like if we could, and we know that we can't, but if we could, who are my ancestors? Where are they from? And normalized to not knowing. I think for me, the grief, when I hear you all talk about that, is like how comfortable I've gotten not knowing. Mm -hmm. How, How comfortable I've gotten not knowing who I am, where I come from, so much comfort with it that I almost accept it as part of just the way it is, the way it is supposed to be. And there has to be some atonement for that intentional disruption to our right to be connected to where we come from. It's been so pervasive that there are people like me who have a difficulty even accessing that grief, like I mourn when I listen to you talk about it and listening to Courtney talk about it because I struggle to access that place in myself where I'm able to lament what I don't know because I'm so used to not knowing it and it feels normal to me. And it's not until I'm around women like you all that I realize that that is a place where I need to be resurrected, that's a that's a that's trauma that's dysfunction right and I'm just I'm used to it I'm used to it Amber the trauma of not knowing who we are yeah yeah and the fact that it's colored as normal like I you know and I know I thought it was a big deal I knew who my great-grandparents were right you know but that Mm -hmm. I did I don't really know who I am just recognizing how not normal that is for so many other people groups in the world, but how we just internalize it as just the way it is, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so heavy that I think that survival necessitates turning down the volume on some of that just to move forward, I think, um, because it, it is evidence of the trauma done to us. Yeah, it, it is. I feel like this conversation that we're having, it needs to be expanded and it needs to happen more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. white people and black people. I was in church a month ago and the pastor preached about how ancestor worship was sin. He was he was preaching about how um, the there were things that separated us from God. And, and two of his points were waste beads. He preached about the ungodliness of waste beads. Y'all, I, can't, I cannot even make this up. He preached about the ungodliness of waste beads and how it was rooted in like witchcraft. And then he talked about how, you know, Black people are always talking about the ancestors this and the ancestors that. And I, 
you know, I was just sitting there like, I was like, okay, you know, I know I got my own trauma because I'm I'm not able to always access that, but I know this right here is some boo kaka, okay? But how many people are literally being taught to disassociate from their inherent right to know who God made them to be and who God connected them to in the name of that same God. Like the shit is just wild. It's wild. And there are so many people like me who feel like there's nothing to be had from, you know, knowing who you are. They're normalized to it. And they're not just normalized to it, recognizing that that's a problem, but they're normalized to it, thinking that that's a good thing, that they don't, you know, want to know, or that they don't need to know their ancestry. And it's like, um, have you read the Bible? I mean, have you never skipped over the pages where it was like the son of the second cousin of the play cousin of I'm like, can we let me go? Let me get home somewhere. Like, have you not ever read that Bible? Because it's like, I just I didn't never need to know who Noah's play cousin was, but I do. Because it's in there. Okay, I know it's in there. So I mean, you talking about like, erasing ancestry. And that, like probably a third or a fourth of that book is nothing but let me tell you who my people are. Sit down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You got power in our lineage. Exactly. (laughs) No, I was just going to say there's power. There's, there's that power in our lineage and our history. And that's why there's the naming and you take away power from people when they don't know their name and where they come from. Speak on it. Yeah. And so um, there's a deep inner grief because I didn't yeah. always used to connect to that either, Amber. It was, it's just more recent years, but I've felt a deep inner grief of not knowing. And I've felt a longing for the place and language and voices and soil and to know and feel more than anything monetary, deeply robbed of not having the knowing of my name that's right and lineage and heritage and that is powerful and it's worth its weight <laughs> and significance that's worth it all to know to have the knowing and so much of power that people held over us was stripping us of our names and of knowing and reclaiming that wow what a beautiful thing yeah. yeah from a perspective of self-care how are you honoring your blackness faith I'm teaching myself this is a journey in progress I think I, I have been taught through culture or American culture specifically that my worth is based in how much I hustle and how much I work which means that I wonder if I am of any form of being productive, if I allow myself a moment to rest, or if my body is speaking to me saying, this is just not the time I want to sleep. Um, I've spent more time this summer learning to listen to my body in order to take care of myself. And I have been Sharifa, you know, coming from how busy I was before to being able to spend a summer to listen to my body. It's been transformative for me. I have in a deep way, been able to reconnect with myself. And I'm not, you know, perfect at it. You know, there's still moments where I'm like, gosh, I didn't do as much today as I needed to or this and that, but it finally hit me in the car today. Yesterday I was actually really productive and I was proud of myself. Um, 
but it was, it was, it hit me that it was this moment where that's because that's what needed to happen yesterday. And I had it in my body to make that happen. And there's just been times and days where I just didn't have it in me and I needed to be okay that I didn't have it that day. And I just needed to rest. I'm becoming more gentle with myself. And that's a part of my self-care because I've always been so hard on myself. Um, I'm not doing this enough. I'm not enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And the rest that I'm experiencing from letting my body teach me how to rest, whether I like it or not, if my body's going to sleep, my body's going to sleep, (laughs) you know, just like you said, Courtney, your words are just bringing my whole summer to me into, into, you know, like just play the play by play. Yes. My body was teaching me to rest, whether I wanted to rest or not, I was forced into it. And so caring for myself is learning to honor my body, learning to listen and learning to trust that my worth and value isn't based on how much I can produce, how much I can do. The beauty in understanding myself is in learning to rest. Um, I'm a better woman because of it. And I like the person that I am when I'm rested. Oh, I love that. So Amber, from a perspective of self-care, how are you honoring your Blackness? Oh, um, I am sort of in the same boat as fate, but mine is teaching myself not to treat self-care as a reward for productivity. That's kind of where I am, right? I, I have always felt like caring for myself, even just being present in my own body is something I had to earn. So it's just like small things. Like I got my hair done today and the, the lady who does my hair is about 30 minutes from my house and I had to pee. And so I stopped and went to pee like on the way home. Like I just, just like not holding my pee, like things like that. Like, I got to go to the freaking bathroom and I'm finna go to the freaking bathroom. I'm not going to wait till I get home because if I wait till I get home, the kids will bombard me when I hit the door and it'll be another 30 minutes before I pee. I have to, so I'm going to go pee, you know, like it's, and so just like things like that, like not earning the right to go to the bathroom, not earning the right to like take a stop and drink water and, you know, take a deep breath. Like for me, all of those things have always been like, once I get everything done, then I'll sit down, then I'll have a drink of water, then I'll, and just really realizing that I can be hydrated before I finish my to-do list, right? I can go to the bathroom, I can eat, I can take a nap. Like I don't have to make doing those things contingent upon me being productive to a point where I feel like I've earned the right to do it. And that's something that's been very hard for me. I think about how abusive I was to my body in law school. Like I had a freezer bag in my shower and I would put like a note card in there so I could study while I showered. And I mean, it was just like insane stuff like that. And when I felt like I needed to be uncomfortable so I wouldn't sleep long, I would sleep on the floor. Like I wouldn't sleep in my bed. And just realizing like how normalized I was to abusing my body for the sake of being productive, for the sake of getting a good outcome. And I just, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't. Amber, if, as you were talking, I heard Lauren Hill singing, it could all be so simple. 
<laughs> yes, but you rather make it hard. Girl, mm -hmm. go take your ass to the bathroom and pee. Okay, yeah. sis, go pee. Go pee. It's not even that complicated. Like, go pee. Go pee. Go get a glass of water. Like, eat, you know? Eat. Yes. Eat. But that's the thing that our ancestors, they couldn't just stop anywhere and go pee. Right. So when we think about ancestral trauma yeah. or, or otherwise legacy burdens, that's our that's our burden that we've carried yes. is that we've got to hold our pee till we get home. It's simple things yes. that white people will never understand what that feels like. Yes. Yes. Sharifa. From a perspective of self-care, how are you honoring your Blackness? I honor my Blackness through resistance. So it, it comes down to like micro resistances all the time because I have radical acceptance of where I am, what country I'm in, how, how toxic the, the society is for me, how I was not meant to survive in it and so we have the ministry of we're still here that is what our ministry is we're witnesses to that um so for me um i know that i'm predisposed to high blood pressure cardiovascular disease uh diabetes and so resistance is walking resistance is, is movement. Um, resistance is also in, you know, not accepting standards for BMI or whatever, whatever, where I wasn't, I was never the model. I was never the medical model. So I also look in the mirror and like what I see, cause that's resistance, loving, loving my curves. And I, I relate so much, Amber, to what you said about like I my bladder was a timer for me. And I was just like, I'm not going to get up and do this peeing thing until I get this list done. I, I really thought that I was the only one. So I'm just like, why are we why are we like this? I self resistance is like not being a mule in your own life. Like, I'm not going to do that. The rest of society sees me as a mammy or a mule or a magical negress. And I'm just like, okay, so I need to make sure that I am very soft, very human, um, that I ask for help, that I go to bed, go lay down, go lay down, right? That's my energy. So it's, but it's these micro resistances because I know where, I know where I live. I know what that does to my body and, and to my mind. And then the last thing I do that I'm really happy about as far as micro resistance as self-care for my blackness is, is, is listen to and cheer on black women. Like, especially specifically especially specifically like and it doesn't matter what it faith those earrings though you know like it's it's like that culture of I see you I see you you are so beautiful you're so kind you're just so smart like who can I big up who 
it's got to be at least five a day. Because because if you're winning, if you're winning, I'm winning. That's me. Yeah. yeah. Courtney, from a perspective of self-care, how are you oh. honoring your Blackness? All the above has been so, so good. Yes to all those things. Um, I am honoring my Blackness and, and loving myself. I'll start with connecting with Sharifa. I'm loving my curves. Um, I'm loving my body. I, I grew up in predominantly white spaces. Um, I don't know. Have y'all watched um, Being Mary Jane recently? I just started watching it. I never watched it when it was actually on, but it is depressing. Like the, the style, like her little eyebrows are penciled on. She's always wearing like this nude gloss, like nothing to accentuate her, li her lips, nothing to accentuate her butt. I mean, her straight hair, like everything's so like Euro, well, I don't even know what to call it, like dumbed down, like literally like just dumbing down her beauty. And I was just so struck by that recently. And so I've been like, I mean, I got the bold lipstick on. I've been buying more bold lipstick. I've been, you know, letting my boobies out a little bit sometimes here and there to kind of like push against that you know, weird, you know, or Christian, like white supremacist thing that wants us all buttoned up and covered up all the time because our, you know, people don't know how to act on our bodies or whatever, can't handle it. I'm like, you know, fuck that. Like I'm, I'm wearing, you know, I wear what I want to wear, whatever that looks like. If it looks more masculine one day, that's how I'm bisexual. So like, I'm going to go a little bit masculine one day. If I, if I want to be, you know, all curved out and cute with my bold red lipstick, that's what I'm doing. But I'm not apologizing for how I show up. And, you know, after going through a lot of body image stuff as a young person and then having two babies and then um, COVID, um, I have just been like watching my body keep me alive through COVID. I'm just like, you are only ever worth celebrating, only ever worth celebrating. I'm not going to complain about my fupa. I'm not going to complain about my wings. I'm not complaining about anything, none of that anymore. I'm going to dye my hair. I'm going to wear the outfits. I'm going to like, because it's only ever worth celebrating. It's such a gift. It's such a beautiful, I mean, God did such good work. You know, who am I, who am I to doubt his handiwork? <laughs> you know what I mean? Who am I to question how he put me together and why? And so, yes, I, I mean, I am exercising a little, a little bit. I walk my daughter to school, you know, things like that. I eat how I want to eat, which happens to have a lot of vegetables in it because that's what I enjoy. But I am not apologizing for a single thing I put in my mouth, a single thing I put in my cup, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not doing it anymore. You know, I'm loving, I'm loving, I'm loving how, how God chose to put me together you know um I love how so God put you together yeah. I've literally been staring thank at your you, outfit sis. hair thank everything you, this whole time I'm like you, thank so you. good thank, thank you, you so thank much. you for speaking that I'm listening to you mm -hmm. and receiving it and taking it in because there's some days I'm like uh-oh but what you're talking about is that continual freedom to just be <laughs> and to look at my body and say this is good it's good all yes, the time. Yes. Good Thank all the that. time. 
all the time all y'all are gorgeous and I'm not just saying that literally like it's it's fact and also taking care of my mind and my you know and my emotional health you know going to a therapist started on a medication regimen something I never thought I would do ever 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 and I'm so grateful to God have my other little medicines my my plant medicines also all those things like whatever's gonna make me feel like my best self why am I suffering why I'm not doing it anymore I'm just I just I can't I can't do it it's like it feels offensive to me to allow myself to suffer um so struggling is its own thing life is struggle there's struggles that we are all going to go through but I'm not going to let myself suffer I'm not going to keep myself from something that's going to help you know help it help it through so Courtney that was so fucking powerful but I I want you to know like if I could just hug you right now like like you are my sister Sharifa you are my sister Amber you are my sister Faith you are my sister like so much I'm feeling so much love in this space right now speaking truth to power is what I believe that we're all doing in our own individual ways right what lessons or insights do you hope to leave with people in the work that you do and how you show up? What, what lesson or insight do you hope to leave with others? And I'll start with faith. That is so good. And I think the lessons and the insight that I hope to leave with people is the same lesson and insight. I think that I'm learning and teaching my own self, which is that you are enough just as you are how you present yourself how you feel whatever it is you're enough just as you are and the educator side of me has the hope for that people when they interact with my work would that we would see one another's humanity and that we would be able to honor one another and I think humanizing each other again um getting to a place where like I'm deeply invested in your humanity as a person that matters to me I hope that I can continue to push forward conversations and people come away being reminded of how important it is to see people in their humanity beyond what people are just typing on the computer. When I'm in communion with somebody, when I'm in person with somebody, can I deeply see their humanity? Can I actually care about that? And um, that's just kind of what it's life and is speaking to me. And I hope that when people come away from something with me, it's acceptance of themselves and being able to humanize and hold space for somebody else. Mm, Amber. Um, I think mine is to, and it's interesting because I think it's my self-work as well, but to not settle for what is tolerable, but to see the work through. Um, you know, and I feel like that's my ministry in corporate America, you know, when I'm sitting in these boardrooms and, you know, we're talking about how do we create diverse, you know, law school candidates. And it's like, well, we can't try to figure out a tolerable level of racism, right? A tolerable level of, of, of 
injustice or exclusion. We're either gonna do the work or we're not. And so we know that this work is not just about who is or who is not in law school, but we gotta start with how do people apply the history of these institutions, right? And I think for me, it's just sort of encouraging people to see the work through. And, and that's my work in myself, not to figure out a life I can tolerate, but to see the work through in creating a life that I truly love. And it's why I do what I do in my personal time is to empower people not to accept and tolerate things and figure out how to become more accustomed to dealing with the systemic injustices around you but to give people the tools they need to see the work through to tear that shit down. We have to tear it down um, because the system wants us to figure out what we can tolerate and accept that until we become numb enough that they can just gradually put more and more and more back on and restore to the status quo. And so really my, my work, my purpose is to just encourage people to see the work through. Yeah, thank you, Amber. Speaking to power, what lessons or insights do you hope others receive, Sharifa? Um, well, I feel compelled most often to um, highlight hypocrisy. I, I hope that my legacy for the people who I um, interact with and for my children, you know, I, I want them to see the world with eyes um, that put feet to truth, that can see that can discern facade from, from reality, from truth. And that always have, I want them to have eyes that see and discern. I want them to have hearts that dream and imagine. And I, I think that I get so angry and point out hypocrisy because I am um, so tender to the ideal that could be, what could be. And so I hope for, for that duality to exist, to, to dream a better world and also to call out lies, especially lies um, that are shrouded in a, a sense of truthiness. Oh my God, that's powerful. Courtney. The biggest thing, the thing that came to mind first is that no one is disposable. So that we are all image bearers. We are all equipped with you know, the things that lead to life and godliness. We are all, um, we all come with inherent wisdom and gifts. And that is a truth. Um, there's nothing that can be done about that except how we show up to the party. And so there is a responsibility that we have to, to employ those gifts for the purpose of lifting each other up to getting each other free. You know, I often find myself in spaces where I'm coaching, you know, white folks and, and, and predominantly white institutions in this work. And um, white folks like really love a blame game. Like they really love a blame game. They really love a responsibility shift. And, and it really is an interesting thing when I remind them that no one is disposable and that they have gifts and wisdom that is inherent and that it is their responsibility to do something about what they see. They, it's not their responsibility to tell me about this person. 
<laughs> that they are mad about. It's a, it's their responsibility to do something about what they see. And that's all of us, you know, everyone. Um, but I, but that's something that really, really comes to mind. And um, I think it's just so, so critically important that whiteness wants us to think that some of us are just collateral damage, you know, friendly fire. And um, that is not, that is not who God is. That is not what the universe shows us. Everything has its place, its purpose, its inherent value and wisdom from the ant to the, you know, to the redwood, everything. Um, and so that's what I hope people come away from me knowing deeply. Courtney, I wrote down, it's your responsibility, white people, right? White people in parentheses to do something about what you see. I need that. Can you put that in a merch line somewhere? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, th that's it. Um, Faith, Amber, Sharifa, Courtney, thank you so much. This conversation, like how beautiful, how can you not love Black women? I mean, because you're jealous. <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't nothing but unprocessed love. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is such a lovely introduction, too, because Tasha, I've never spoken to you in like kind of real time. Courtney, I just started following you after um, the Instagram, like you started Tasha, the Instagram message. So, and I've just been like, oh, where's she been all my life? I know. So, right? so like, it's so nice to to hear you. It's and it's always, it's been my pleasure to listen and and learn from and look at the expressions of Faith and Amber. <laughs> it's just, it's been my pleasure for for a few years now. But like, how what a what an honor. This yeah. was everything. This was yes. everything. Thank you, Tasha. Oh. I'm so excited and so honored that okay. um, you invited me on the podcast. So thank you. This has been so fun. Yeah. This I, is y'all carry. Y'all mm. carry just such depth. You just carry so much. Your stories, your mm. insights, your wisdom. I mean, like this just feels so ordained for us to be sharing this space together. It just feels like, you know, there's like memorials like along the path, like this is a memorial. Yes. Like, we're going to look back on this conversation and be like, this was a moment. This was a turning point. This was a door opening. Like it just feels very, very, very powerful. Ordained was a perfect word. It was, it was a perfect word. Yeah. And this is why they try to keep us separated because there's so much power just in, in us mm. five. When we get together, God just automatically enters in. Yes. Come on, come on, come on. That's I'm it. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So, so the anointing was there like already. And this is why white people, they don't, because mm. we're so powerful. And so just thank you for everything. I love you all.
Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time. Thank you.